job there. Well, you should have a lesson. Uh, we started last week encountering, uh, having an encounter with God. And uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9 is our text verse that we kind of just jumped off of and launched into this lesson and uh, looking at different people in the scriptures uh, that experienced uh, really a, a great encounter with the Lord and how it changed their lives. Certainly in Genesis chapter 3, we know that Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are tempted to eat of the forbidden fruit. And as they eat of that, <clears throat> uh, their eyes are open and they are aware that they are naked. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9, it says, And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees in the, of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And so certainly we see that Adam and Eve... Uh, had an, a special encounter with the Lord. And uh, they would have to uh, account for the fact of why they were hiding from God. They would have to give an account of the fact of why they were aware of the fact they were naked. And God would confront them about their disobedience. And an animal would be slain, the blood would be shed, uh, the atonement would be provided. Uh, their sins would be covered by the skins of the animal, and they would be have, yet they would have to suffer the consequence of their actions in being put out of the garden. And so uh, they had an encounter with the Lord. And I just went through, if you have a lesson from last week, or you didn't bring your lesson back, or maybe you weren't here last week, we'll give you the fill-ins to get you up to speed of the people that we studied about last week and uh, of how they had an encounter with God. First of all, we talked in Genesis chapter 5 about Enoch. And uh, we know that Genesis 5 tells us Enoch walked with God, but, but he, was, he, uh, he was not for the Lord took him. And so certainly when we think about Enoch, he gained the uh, knowledge or knowing the mind of God. Uh, if you're going to be able to walk together with the Lord, Amos 3.3 3 says, can walk, two walk together except they be agreed? And certainly Enoch's life, his testimony was that he was in total agreement with God and he was so close to the Lord, walking with the Lord, fellowshipping with the Lord, that all of a sudden the Lord just took him and uh, he was not uh, present on the earth anymore. And so, uh, but if you look at Enoch's life, look at his, the genealogy aspect of it, his father, his children, his grandchildren, uh, you see a progression in uh, how we can uh, gain the knowledge of the mind of God. First of all, Jared was his father. The name Jared means uh, prostrate. And uh, certainly that would speak well of being humble before God, uh, laying, as it were, out on uh, your face before the Lord. And then, of course, uh, Jared had Enoch, who walked with the Lord. But Enoch's name means dedicated. And what a challenge. There's a great uh, lesson and uh, uh, a message you could really develop on how Jared's humility before God and humbleness before God uh, instilled in his son a spirit of dedication and devotion to his God. And then Enoch would have a son by the name of Methuselah. Methuselah means weapon. Literally, it means a dart. 
Uh, it's, it has the idea of being a weapon in the hand of the one who's holding the dart or the arrow, you could use that analogy. And so literally Enoch, son Methuselah would be a weapon in the hand of God. And then Methuselah had Lamech, uh, which means powerful. And as we're humble before the Lord, dedicated to the Lord, and being willing to let the Lord use us as he sees fit, we can experience the power of God flowing through us. And then, of course, when all this is going on, the world is becoming wicked, exceedingly wicked. Every wicked imagination of, imagination of a man's heart he's doing, and that's when God brings the flood and judgment on the world and the son of Lamech is Noah, which means rest. And Noah and his family would rest in their God, trust their God, and they would be protected in the ark and would be delivered when everyone else and everything else was destroyed. And so we can find our rest in the Lord. And so this genealogical evaluation of the meanings of the names helps us to see, uh, uh, gain understanding of the mind of God how God thinks, what God desires, what God wants to accomplish. And so we need to live our life like Enoch and have an encounter with God where we understand who he is. And uh, we know that it's the closer we get to God, the more fellowship we have with the Lord, the greater understanding that we have of who God is. That's why Paul said, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. We're to gain the mind and the heart of the Lord. So we talked about Enoch knowing the mind of God. Then we talked about Abraham having the righteousness of God. It's very clear in scriptures that it was not righteous, the works that made Abraham righteous, but the fact is that God imputed unto Abraham because of his faith, his righteousness, and with that faith that receives the righteousness of God, he works out uh, his life. And it was based upon the letter A, the God's call in his life. God would call him out of the land of Ur of Chaldees. And God has a call on every one of our lives. And letter B was God's promise. We talked about that a little bit. God promised that he would make him a mighty nation. Uh, the nations of this earth would be blessed if they were a blessing to Abraham. The nations would be cursed if they were a curse to Abraham. And then we talked about God's impression and uh, literally the impression or the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Uh, God wants to stamp, as it were, his image on us. God wants to impress upon us uh, what is holy and what is right. And God demonstrated that in the life of Abraham. And so we talked about that encounter where we have the righteousness of God. When you get saved, you encounter God and you receive the righteousness of Christ. And so we need to live that righteousness out. Then we talked about Jacob receiving the blessings of God. Certainly we know in the story where we're reading of Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob wrestling with the Lord, uh, we see him in his humility, he's humbled in the presence of God, uh, which letter B develops his, his ability to have his total dependence on God. And uh, we live our life as a believer in Christ, totally dependent upon the Lord for everything and every aspect of our life. We encounter the blessings of God, we receive the blessings of God, 
through total dependence on the Lord. And then letter C, we see in the chapter uh, uh, Jacob wrestling, his wrestling with the Lord. And uh, I don't know uh, if you've experienced a time in your life where you had to wrestle with God and uh, where you're pursuing God, longing for God to do something, and you won't give up praying uh, until God comes through, wrestling with the Lord. And that's what Jacob did, and God blessed him. And literally, because of that wrestling, he was changed. So his change, he was changed from Jacob. His name was changed from Jacob, which means a trickster, uh, to Israel, which literally carries with it the meaning of like being a prince for God. And so when we receive the blessings of God, God changes us, our whole outlook on life and our whole devotion, uh, what we're devoted to, whether it be the world or whether we be Christ. And so we want God to change us. I just don't want to live my Christian life just in a, like on a plateau. I don't want to live my Christian life uh, without ever being changed. I just always remember when God saved me, what a drastic change that happened in my life. When God called me to preach, what a drastic change. As God's directed my life over the years, I mean, dramatically changing my direction, changing my thought process, changing my devotion, and uh, changing my zeal. I want God to change me. I just don't want to stay the same. And so we see Jacob receiving the blessings of God. Then we talk about David. And David will represent repentance towards God. Uh, McShane said, understanding can wait, but obedience cannot. And David needed to learn that, that he needed to have a spirit of repentance. Psalm 51 is one of the great penitential psalms in the scriptures. And it's all about David repenting in reference to his oh, uh, oh, uh, adultery uh, with Bathsheba. And all that, that, in, in, it, that whole thing involved, not just treachery, dishonesty, adultery, murder, and all. I mean, that whole situation encompassed a multitude of ills and a, a bad behavior. And when we talk about encountering God through repentance, letter A is just simply this. It's a cry for mercy. Uh, repentance is not boasting to God what you can do. Repentance is crying to God because you can't do anything. And you need God to extend his mercy towards you because of your sin. And then he cries out in Psalm 51, acknowledging the need for cleansing. And uh, we, need, we need to be clean of our sin. We need God to wash us thoroughly. And then, of course, that takes place. Let us see. We talk about the confession. David was willing to confess or acknowledge. A confess means to be in agreement with God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That my confession is me admitting, me agreeing with the fact uh, that I am dirty, I'm sinful, I'm separated from God, and I need God to cleanse me. And, and so that matter of confession, we need to bring people to a point of confession. I think a lot of times our soul-winning efforts uh, really just fall on deaf ears, and people may pray a prayer, but they don't get saved because there's so much of an emphasis of, of just praying this prayer. 
I've heard people say that over and over again. I've been out soul winning with different people. Just pray this prayer and you give us, you'll be saved. And yet there's no spirit of repentance on the person's heart. There's no evidence of conviction about their sin. And we must confess our sin in order to be saved. And so David represents for us a repentance towards God. And we can have an encounter with God through the spirit of repentance. And that brings us up where we are. Isaiah chapter 6 in uh, verse 1, uh, we see that Isaiah would represent for us a clear vision of who the Lord is and really of who we are. And uh, first of all, letter A is just a clear vision of uh, uh, who God is. In Isaiah 6 and 1, it says, in the, year, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And so Isaiah had a clear view or a clear vision of God. In Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 57 in verse 15 it says, and the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. Uh, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. And so our vision, we want to have an encounter with God. Uh, we have to have, identify how do you see God? I mean, what vision do you have of God? Uh, no man has seen God, literally visible seeing God, says in John 1, 18. But the only begotten Son, that's Jesus, declared him or revealed him. And so our vision of God has to come based on the scriptures and what God identifies, how he identifies himself and what he reveals about himself in the scriptures and so how you see God will affect your response to God and Isaiah was moved because of the fact of the view that he had of the Lord he saw him high and he saw him lifted up he saw him as the one uh, who is the eternal judge who is always exalted because of his holiness and his righteousness and so our view of God. Oftentimes what happens is we don't have a real encounter with God because we're not seeing God with a clear vision. And where there's no vision, the people perish. And so I can't have a, a strong uh, Christian life and a strong spiritual encounter with God if I don't see him for who he is. He's holy, holy, holy. He is righteousness. He, he, he's exalted. He is lifted up. And so Isaiah had a clear view of who God was. And uh, it changed his perspective of himself. And so not only do we have a clear vision, but we need a sincere brokenness. In Isaiah 6, in verse 5, he said, Then said I, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so the word undone there in verse 5 of Isaiah 6 means to be shattered. Uh, it literally carries it with the idea of being broken completely apart. 
to realize that man cannot go on without God. And I thought about that shadow. I remember years ago when we were kids. And you know how parents, mothers always have something deliberately sitting where you can break it. So when she comes home, she can say, what did you do? I remember my brother and I, we were horsing around in the living room. We knocked this teapot, this, this ceramic teapot off the tea, uh, coffee table. And the thing shattered everywhere, man. But we were smart. We went and got the glue. And we glued the thing back together. We did pretty good gluing it together, too. And my mom, she walks in the house and she sits down. And right away, she was like, what did you do? I'm like, what, what are you talking about? We didn't do nothing. Who broke the teapot? What teapot, Mom? You know, we're trying to do everything we can to get out of it. We were guilty. The thing was shattered. <laughs> I mean, we broke it up big, big time. I mean, there was crack lines all through that thing. And literally, that's what it means when Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. He said, I'm shattered. I'm broken into pieces. And he was broken into pieces because of the fact that he had a clear view of who God was. And when you, when you gain an understanding, or I should say a, a vision of who God is, boy, I'll tell you, it doesn't leave anything left for us. It shatters us when we think of how much God loves us, but how much I hated him. It, it's it's amazing concept that that oh, um, you know people if something goes wrong in their life right away they're, they're they want to blame God for everything but they don't get angry and mad at, at the devil and oh, uh, when we see God for who He is it breaks us it shatters us because of the, we understand how vile and how wicked wicked uh, how broken we are how disconnected we are with the reality of what life is all about because God is so divine and so perfect and so holy and so righteous. There's only one place that one way that we can respond is I'm undone. And so a clear view of God will change your perspective on life. So he had a clear vision. He had a sincere brokenness that developed a right spirit. In Psalm 51 and 17, it says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And so we have a right spirit, a right attitude towards the Lord. And it is God that instills in us a spirit of brokenness. I love this quote I found. It said, brokenness will bring confession, but confession is not brokenness. And that's so important for us to understand because somebody can say things but not have a broken heart. Somebody can say things or get in agreement about things but not be shattered over those things. I just remember when I cried out to God to, to, to be saved, I just remember I was shattered. Man, I was broken. I, I cried out to God. I, I said, God, if I die... I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I was a broken man. I said, God, will you save me? The confession that was offered up was a confession out of brokenness. And so we need to be broken before the Lord so that we have a confession 
acknowledging the fact that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. A broken spirit, a right spirit. Brokenness is not an emotion, it's an attitude. I remember years ago, uh, Dr. Whitfield, one of the, my uh, teachers in, in Bible college, he was a pastor of a church he started. Uh, he was one of the first, I think he was the first graduate or one of the first graduates from Midwestern Baptist College when it started in 1953. And he went to college there and he graduated and, and went about 30 miles away from Pontiac and uh, down in Birmingham. Um, I think that's what it was called, Birmingham, uh, Michigan. He started a church in 1950, uh, it'd be four years, so 1957. And what a great teacher, great Bible teacher. And uh, um, I remember, I, uh, I now forget what I was going to say about him. Amen? <laughs> Brokenness is not an emotion. It's a t I know what it was now. Uh, he got saved. He was a businessman. And he got saved because of the fact that he came and he just set up an appointment, talked to Dr. Malone, and he said, you're all the time he was going to church. He had been invited to church. He was going to church, and he told Dr. Malone, he said, you know, you're always talking about this born-again stuff. And I don't understand what you mean about this born-again. I want to know what, what you mean about being born again. And so he went through plan of salvation, explained it to him. He says, well, that's what I need. Bowed his head and trusted Christ as a Savior. Not an emotional man. I never saw him be a real emotional or anything like that when he was teaching the Bible or anything. But a very practical man, a man that knew that a decision had to be made, acknowledging the fact of the brokenness of man without Christ. And he just, in a matter of fact way, prayed and asked the Lord to save him, and his life was completely changed. He surrendered to ministry, got out of business, went out and started a church. What a great man of God, how God used him. Brokenness is not an emotion, it is an attitude. There's a lot of people that may come forward, I've seen them over the years, come forward and weep in the altar and get up and walk out of the church and never change anything. Their life is not changed. What happened? Well, they might have had an emotional experience, but their attitude towards God didn't change. And so if we have a clear view of God, we can have an encounter of God based on our seeing God for who he is that breaks us and it changes our spirit. Our attitude is changed uh, towards the things of God and to the person of God. And uh, we're never the same after that. And so I want to have an encounter of God. I want to I gain a new vision of God as I read the scriptures, as I listen to preaching, as I fellowship with other believers. I want to enter into a new, uh, clear way of seeing and understanding who God is. So Isaiah had a clear view of God. Well, in 2 Samuel 23 in verse 1, the psalmist of Israel, was, had a willingness to follow God. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, in uh, verse uh, 1 uh, through 5, we won't read over there at that, 2 Samuel chapter 23. If I can get there real quick, I'll read it for you. 2 Samuel 23 in uh, verse 1 says, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, 
And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even the morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after uh, of, uh, rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. And so the sweet psalmist, it's interesting that David was referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And that is definitely in, in reference to, as you read the Psalms of David, uh, a willingness to follow uh, the Lord and a willingness to be obedient unto his God. Psalm 23, in verse 2, uh, we see that he experiences the comfort of God. Experiences the comfort of God. In uh, Psalm 23 and 2, says, Oh my God, I, oh, that's chapter 22, only chapter 23. It says, He leadeth me, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. That's comfort. This matter of being able to lie down in green pastures and be able to be beside still waters is the fact that God comforts us. And the sweet psalmist of Israel helps us to understand that when we follow God, there is a comfort that comes upon us. There's trials, there's difficulties, there's disappointments in life. They're constantly coming upon us. They're constantly oppressing us. But it's the fact that I know that God is the one who is with me and brings me to a place of still waters. I can be at perfect peace with God in the midst of all kinds of turmoil in life. And so the comfort of God enables me to experience God. And then Psalm 27 in verse 11, we see the instruction of God. And it says in verse 11, teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of my enemies. The instruction of God. Uh, we, we're living in a world that is so corrupt and so out of whack with and out of tune with God and with his word. Uh, we need to let God teach us on how to live in response to the world in which we live. The instruction of God. We need, Lord, teach me and show me your way. Show me a plain path. You know, this whole thing with the, I'm glad that the immunization thing was was stopped in the Senate here in Jersey. They're going to still fight to get it done. Uh, but it, I just think it's very interesting of how aggressive the whole governmental issue is in dictating to human beings, dictating to you and to me what we must do. And if we don't do it, and violating your body. If you don't do it, you're breaking the law and you can be imprisoned or you have all kinds of trouble. 
I see very clearly, I'm working on a message after the first year, I'm going to be preaching on Bible prophecy. It's very clearly that the spirit of Antichrist is upon us. And the spirit of Antichrist is a spirit of the mark of the beast. And it literally is, if you do not do what we tell you to do socially, then you're in violation and we're going to punish you for that. That's the mark of the beast. You may not have a physical mark, but the philosophy and the practice and the pattern is already there. And it's becoming more and more prevalent in our lives. So if you're a Christian and you have a business and you don't uh, well, conform to what they expect you to conform to and where it violates your religious convictions, uh, they're going to put you out of business. During the tribulation period, the mark of the beast. You cannot conduct business if you don't have the mark of the beast. You'll be imprisoned if you don't uh, 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 immunize your children. Whatever your feelings are or whatever they are, one way or another. I'm not telling you one way or the other. I'm just saying this. You have the right as a parent to make that decision for your children. The government doesn't have the right to tell you that you have to do that. But yet, that's the spirit that's being impressed that you have to uh, conform to what we desire for you to conform to. If not, you're legally in trouble. We're living in the spirit of Antichrist. So what does that mean? We need God, teach me your ways. I'm praying right now about how we're going to deal with all these issues as a church and all these issues as a Christian school. I'm asking God, teach me. Show me what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to do this in dealing with all these things. Because I'm not succumbing to the philosophy of the mark of the beast. I'm sorry. And so the Christian needs to have an encounter with God that's based on more than God's comfort in my life. It has to be based on God's instruction in my life. Notice he goes on in Psalm 31 and 3. The leading of God. We need God to direct our paths. Psalm 31, 3, it says, For thou art my rock and my fortress, therefore thy name's sake lead me and guide me. So you see this kind of progression through the sweet psalmist of Israel as he's writing. He writes in reference of comfort that he receives from God, but the reality is that comfort's enjoyed based on the instruction of God, and the instruction of God enables me to submit to and follow the leading of God in my life. And so I can encounter God. I can have an, a relationship with God that is powerful because of the fact that I'm willing to submit and follow his leadership in my life. And then there's the security of God. Psalm 61 in verse 2 says, From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Security in God. And we need to rest assured that God is always on the throne and he is always in control. And so the sweet psalmist of Israel had a willingness to follow God, and that helps us to be able to follow God also. Well, we also see the disciples. The disciples would help us to understand witnessing humility uh, before the Lord. And an encounter with God for us can be experienced as we witness the humility of others before God. 
And there's just, we have Bible verses here. We don't have time to look them all up, but just a couple of things. The Syrophoenician woman, the disciples witnessed her at the, uh, beside the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus responded to her. He says, you know, the, hey, wait a minute. The food's not for the dogs. The amazing thing that he identifies her as a dog. And she says, yes, Lord, but at least the dogs do sit by the master's table and eat the crumbs that fall off of the table. And Jesus' response was that in reference to this woman's great faith. And he used her as an illustration to the disciples that you need to witness what real humility is. You need an encounter with God where you're satisfied just to take whatever the leftovers are if God is in your life, that's sufficient enough. And so the Syrophoenician woman was an example of humility, witness. Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Luke chapter 10 and verse 39, was a great illustration for the disciples of what it was to be humbled at the feet of Christ. It's interesting that the um, Sons of Zebedee, uh, his mother was uh, debating with Jesus and talking to Jesus about wanting her sons to sit on the right hand and left hand of Christ. Uh, not much humility there, amen. <laughs> and uh, the lesson that needs to be learned is that, wait a minute, uh, we need to uh, surrender and humble ourselves in a spirit of worship and praise to our God. And certainly Mary demonstrated that for the disciples. And then I thought of the disciples with Thomas. In John chapter 20, Thomas had boasted and, and spoke of the fact that unless he saw the wound in the side of Jesus and saw the nail prints in his hands and could thresh his hand in or his finger in to the nail prints, he would not believe that Jesus was alive. And when he had an encounter with God, when Jesus showed up, and Thomas faces Jesus face to face in his resurrected body. Thomas's response was that he fell on his knees and cried out, my Savior and my God. And uh, literally the disciples witnessed through Thomas a humbling in the presence of God. So I think an encounter with the Lord is not coming along to place demands upon our God but rather coming along and humbly pleading with our God to show himself to us. And as the disciples witnessed that, they learned what it was to have an encounter with the Lord. Then I thought about Jesus. I believe Jesus would represent oneness with God. In John chapter 17 and verse 5, it says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, uh, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And then again in verse uh, 25, he says, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And so Jesus identifies with a oneness with the Father that was very unique. Because in John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one, literally one in the same. And the disciples needed to learn what it meant to have an encounter with God is being completely at one with our Father in heaven. And uh, there's no debate. There's no demands. Uh, there is just simply identification and surrender. So McShane said this, the Christ in me will not fight against the Christ in you. 
A missionary had stated, send us not more missionaries, send us God-intoxicated men. And uh, coming to a point of being so consumed with God that there is a oneness that is very clear. So letter A is just simply this, there's a mutual identity. I mean, people see you and they immediately identify with the fact that you're a Christian because you're consumed with the character of Christ. The character of Christ emulates from you. People see that shining through you and because of the fact you're in one with the Lord. And uh, what, a, what a great testimony it is, is to be around people who are so committed and surrendered to Christ that the very communications of their mouth is constantly something that is in reference to who God is and what God's doing in their life. But that's a foreign concept in present-day Christianity. We kind of fit God in our conversation when it's convenient or we feel that it's necessary because we're in church. But the reality is the way we live, the way we communicate, the way we respond to things outside of church is not a mutual identifying with the character of Christ. And so Jesus told the Father, he said, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so we want the Lord, we want an encounter with God to where people look at you and they see that there is diff something different in your countenance. They see that everything that the Bible speaks about, what a Christian is or who Christ is, is seen in you, so a mutual identity. And then there was a confident awareness because he says, uh, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That's a confident awareness. Christ is aware of the fact uh, that he's, he's speaking to the Father here and praying for his disciples here. Uh, that there was a time before he was on the face of the earth that he was continually with the Father. And the glory that he has is not something that is being extended to him now as he's on the face of the earth and he's praying until his Father, but the experience of the glory of God that is upon him he possessed before he ever was on the face of the earth. And so there's a confident, it helps me to understand there needs to be a confident awareness that I can experience the glory of God in my life. I can live in light of the glory of God. And then I just see there is a driving commitment. We see Christ being identified very clearly with the Father and confident in who he was before the world began, but there's a commitment to, the desire, to fulfill the will of his Father which is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 16, 15 says, I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanos, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Uh, we have lost the concept in Christianity that when we get saved, we're to be consumed with Christ and addicted to the ministry. Our lives, are, our lives are to be ministry. Our lives are to be surrendered to helping others, sharing our faith with others, our ministering within the body of Christ. 
whether it be teaching or singing or soul winning or nursery or Sunday school or junior church or whatever it is, we're addicted to ministry. And, and I talk with pastors all the time. I go to conferences and things like that and always wanting to learn how to be more effective as a pastor and be able to be uh, influential in people's lives and building and completing the work of the ministry. And across, I'm telling you, across the board, the comments are the same. Uh, people just do not get committed to ministry anymore. And, uh, and it's very difficult to get people involved. And if uh, you're involved in ministry, hallelujah. God wants to use you in a greater way. And uh, so we need to have a driving commitment uh, that if, if God saved us, he saved us for a reason. And we want to encounter God in that. I, I have found this, the greatest times of encountering the Lord in my life has been times of surrendering to fulfill his call, his will, his ministry that he desires for me to be a part of. And as I do that, then I can experience a, a moving of God in my life. So 